How everything started. My way to the PDP 11. Welcome to the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast, episode 21. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast. I am Georg Lora, and this is the podcast about realizing and managing your projects within the embedded systems realm. I tell you the know-how and teach you the ways to succeed and overcome your daily obstacles and problems in project work. I become older. In the last two weeks I was two times directly confronted but I'm already an old-timer in the IT. Where were these guys speaking about the famous PDP-11? First, there was this mentioning in LinkedIn about the PDP-11 that was some kind of nostalgia for someone. And when there was a mail signature, I received a mail by some of my colleagues saying this mail was sent from my PDP-11. And when I asked him, hey, I don't believe that you have not written it from your PDP-11, he sent me a photo showing him from the backside with a PDP-11. But that's really weird. For these guys, it's nostalgic, yeah? But for me, it was presence, and now it's simple past. This episode is about all these things, how things began. How do I have jumped into that computer business, computer science, computer work? At first of all, at this time, it wasn't IT, but it was simply some kind of computer thingy or, or similar. But here by yourself. Stay tuned and be inspired. In 1984, I started my computer science studies. Uh, the personal computer was at that time not born in any way. So there is, things were completely different. My first contact with computers was already 40 years ago. To make a comparison, your 8-core Snapdragon processor in your smartphone has more power when a mainframe system in my study times providing services for the whole university. You have screens, meanwhile. I have had hard paper cards and flickering LEDs. In this episode, I wanted to tell you my first steps with computers and embedded systems. Let's say it that way. During these times, you were already, you have had to be more closer to the system at all. So to the embedded system. Everybody who was involved into computer systems has more or less already at least built one time a computer system by himself. For this episode now, the PDP-11 is not the beginning, but the end point. But let's start from the very beginning of that. At the very, very first time, as I was roughly 16, 17 years old, the only thing what could be afforded by us was a desk calculator, so a handheld calculator, and we are standing in the in the in the shops and trying to, yeah, to experiment with these things because they were too expensive. We could not afford that, and therefore we have had done it directly in the shop. My first calculator, I have had to work 14 days in a row for that, was a Texas Instruments 58. But well, this was one of the first programmable uh, calculators. But I have had uh, quite instantly after that, I wanted to have the bigger one, the Texas Instruments 59. Some of you guys might remember that was the one with the small magnetic cards. You were able to store your programs on it. You have had 960 programmable steps 
which could be stored 100 registers and there was a, a printer available. This was my very first computer system, if I want to name it like that. So the cost was something around, I have had to pay 1,000 German marks at that time. In a way to recalculate that, nowadays it would be roughly four to 5,000 euros. It was horribly expensive. But on the other side, there was the, the, the big competitor was the Hewlett Packard 41C. Some of you guys might remember that. That's uh, the first one with an LCD display and especially with an alphanumeric display. All the other, other ones have only had, uh, the Texas Instruments have had these red LEDs only showing the numbers from 0 to 9 and the dot symbol. That was everything you have had. And the Hewlett Packard, that was the one who has alphanumeric uh, displays. You, he, he has shown you things like divided by zero or something like that. So you, you, you got some, some clear text message. This was, this was already, uh, this was the situation I started into my studies. Already the year before my studies, I started to, to learn programming language. My first programming language I have learned is Pascal. Pascal was um, developed by as a as a pure education language, so it's a functional language and it's a structured language, and uh, this one was very helpful to learn. And but I have learned it on a mainframe system. So a mainframe system at that time that was the TR440. I have learned on that. That was a scientific mainframe manufactured in my hometown at Constance. So that was unbelievable. It was a German mainframe in comparison to the IBM 36 system, for example. And it was mainly used at the universities for statistics and um, scientific calculations. You have to imagine, to give some impression, this mainframe has had, a, that, that was a pure batch system. So nothing nothing in dialogue. So there, were no, there was only a, a, an administrator console to start the system or to do some basic things then. But uh, everything else have had to be done in, as a batch. So you, you, give, you, you gave your order to some operator and when he processed something magic and then afterwards you get the results. The core memory in use of that tier for 40, that was uh, 256 kilowords. And one word was a 48-bit payload with some additional bits on it. So it was 52 bits. And 256,000 words of such kinds were stored in a core memory. So it was, that has had... Uh, you know, core memory—that's the one with the small, uh, with the small toroids, uh, with the, with the, um, with the, with the copper threads in between to read and to write, and uh, the whole system has had something like six to seven uh, MIPS. So the the performance was six to seven MIPS. Even your even your Apple even your Apple Watch has more. So <laughs> only for as a, as a comparison, and the input for these uh, for these batch jobs was done via punching cards. I will have some some pictures in the show notes. So have a look at that how it was done. So you have had a punching card with with all the holes inside, and you have to punch every one one card was one line. 
and we have you have had a punching reader a punch card reader and you put the whole stack of punching cards inside of the reader that was a big machine and it reads it in and that was that was the job processing so you 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 kicked you kicked the job to to start and when something around 5 to 10 minutes nothing happened and after that time there was a big um that was a big uh, chain printer so we have a very quick printer something like one big page in one second so it the the paper was fluting out of this what shooting out of this of, out of this printer and what you get after 15 minutes or 10 minutes was you get 15 pages and on one page where was your your uh, your name and your your id and what has been done and then these 20 lines of the program and then there was someone one full page and there was only one syntax error in line that and then there are three three to five pages at at as a trailer and you have to wait that and then the next session started you 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 corrected your punching card you copied it or you typed it new very often it was simply some syntax error you simply wrote it incorrectly that was the way i have learned pascal the uh, already a good improvement was as I have had the opportunity to access a teletype. A teletype printer, some of you might know, teletype was a telecommunication transmission method and teletyping, that was done with 100 boat. So it was not really that fast, but you couldn't type that fast. So, And then you get the response by the system also in a batch-oriented oriented way. So you have typed in something when you have had to wait one minute and when you get the response. And then tuck, 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 the, the result was printed out. And when you, you, you saw it, uh, how it was created. That was the way I, how I have learned Pascal. And when I have started also to learn Algol, Algol 60, that was the algorithm language, algorithm-oriented language, that was um, more or less a little bit more um, structured approach to do that. It was an older language when, when Pascal. And then also Algol 68 with some new features inside. And uh, at all that time, I remember that you have to imagine with this punching card, that was really dangerous. Uh, why was it dangerous? It, it was dangerous because you have your um, the, the information about your program was held in the order of the cards. So it the lines where every card was one line of your program. If you have 20 lines of a program or 50 lines of a program, that was already some some tile or some pile of uh, of punching cards. And let's imagine you stumble somewhere and you lost the cards, the order of the cards. And then immediately everything was was damaged and uh, you you were completely puzzled the program was instantly crashing because uh, the order was destructed. So it, it would be like someone is artificially mixing up the lines of your program in your in your editor. It's quite hard to uh, sort it out afterwards how it was done. And there, it was even worse at these punching cards. There was the the line was printed in clear text at the at the top line. And that was helpful to understand what's inside. But some of the guys have disabled that. Uh, then you have not understand anything. You have had to, yeah, you have had to type it in for new, or you have to recreate the program. I have, I have experienced one time as one guy was there. There were these big metal cases containing the the punching cards. So if you have more than fifty or one hundred or one, at least five five hundred or thousand punching cards, you could not 
pull them. You 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 cannot carry them correctly, and therefore there were these big uh, metal cases. And one of these guys have had not really locked the la- the metal case, and he come through the door and stumbled. And when there was something like one thousand punching cards flowing flying through the room, so that was really you only heard him yelling, and I d- never forget that. But that was already for the for the mainframe. I continued with that one, and the next language I learned here was Fortran. Fortran, the formula translation language, that was the language you have also today. That's the preferred language if you want to do mathematical uh, calculations and uh, want to do some kind of uh, scientific calculations be done in, in programming language. When Fortran is the absolute favorite here. Complex numbers are part of the language. Then I have started my studies. That was the initial thing we got aware of at that time. There were two two major streams of um, of systems. So on one side there was the mainframe system, and on the other side there were these smaller systems coming up. Sixty five zero two was the preferred processor. There was already Apple was established. Apple the Apple two E. Apple two E. That was my dream, my complete dream with two floppy disk systems, one. Um, um, monochrome monitor, something like um, it was green or some other, some yellow color. So it was marvelous to have something like that with a separate uh, keyboard and all that stuff. And it was expandable. You you could you could place um, modules inside. But it was much too expensive for me. So something like five or f- five thousand. Deutschmarks at that time. So it was completely out of mind. And therefore, uh, Apple has, at that time, has given out the license for cloning their product. And then suddenly Apple II e-clones were flooding the market, and that was one I, I started to use. I was, at that time, in the, very, in the first two uh, semesters of my studies, I was working in, co- in a computer shop uh, where I was responsible for cleaning up inkjet uh, printers and setting up these Apple II um, clones. That was really amazing. You have had something like 64 kilobytes of RAM with a built-in BIOS, and you could start the internal operating system. That was only a very, very small, thin layer. Even the U-boot nowadays is much more versatile than that system. So, and when there was an intrinsic BASIC interpreter, so BASIC was also a language I learned, yeah, so many of you guys might know it also. The BASIC, it was the Beginners also Beginners All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. That was the name, BASIC. And this was one part. But already one year later, or two years later, there were two competitors coming up. That was the Silox Z80 processor. That was the ZX80, ZX81. That was the small system. And uh, this was an awesome... You, need, you have had to need... Um, you needed a television screen to, to set it up. Yeah, so there was no external monitor. The monitor was the te- your television screen. However, always this discussion, either you can play with the ZX81 or you can look television. So both in, in, in parallel, it was not possible. And then on the other side, there was the uh, 68,000 processor by Motorola coming up. All these processors I have just mentioned are processors with 8-bit data 
8-bit data word, 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 word length was 8-bit, so 256 was the major value. And uh, then the uh, the RAM size was regularly something like 48 kilobytes, 64 kilobytes. And there was, you have, for example, to improve the boot system, to, to improve booting, the boot time of um, Apple clone, you have, for example, a um, static RAM disk inside with 128 kilobytes inside. Or it was a dynamic one when it was initialized during startup and you have copied your programs on that. And it was marvelous speedy. That that was that was always our idea to have this kind of RAM disk inside because the floppy disks were really, really slow. And then I built my first computer system. That was the famous MC68000 system by the German MC microcontroller magazine. That was a big um that was a big uh, PCB board, something like yeah, a little bit bigger than a uh, DIN A4 format. And I've had this uh, 68,000 processor on it. Um, that's that's a processor with a 16 a 16 bit word length outside and 32 bits inside. So the registers were already 32 bits. So if you wanted to write a 32 bit register, you have to put two times a 16 bit value inside. I have had 128 kilobytes of RAM. It was self-built, so I have soldered it completely. I only bought the PCB board and the parts of it, and then you started. And it had to have had problems. It was awful. There were crashes all over the time, and you have had to evaluate what's going on. And I have that was the first time I established a logic analyzer. But of course, it was the poor man's logic analyzer. It was something like um, you have simply make some pin with um, CMOS um, with a CMOS chip inside and some uh, some LED output and when you 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 ticked the the pin of the processor so the data pin for example and checked what's the value on it zero or one and when you write it down and then you have gone to the next pin and to the next pin and to the next pin and then you wrote it down the the bit pattern and when you retransferred it to um, or you you uh, made an, an hexadecimal value out of it and then looked into the manual and then you see ah that's this value and if you want to start this system from scratch you have had to have uh, um, a stepper that was only a dip switch and every time you 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 um, you tick that, then a new interrupt was generated, and this interrupt caused the processor to step one program step forward. So you could you could see I have at one time I have debugged the first one hundred steps manually. So always always ticking the different pins of the of the processor to see what's going on, data and address lines. That was really that was hours, yeah, but. On this system, we started to have the famous CPM operating system, a real operating system, not this buggy BIOS something as on the other system. And first time, the OS9 Microware real-time operating system. Some of you might know Microware, OS9, famous system. Uh, that was my first steps inside of that. Beginning with the, with the third semester, I was working in an uh, engineering office or in um, uh, in a bureau for industrial automation, and there I come into contact with all the assembler languages. I have had to learn the sixty-eight thousand assembler. I already have uh, have been familiar with the 
6502 assembler. Uh, but there I we were working with VM, uh, with VME bus systems, all based on 68000 or later on 60, uh, 68020. Uh, that that was that part, and programming was either done in Pascal, unbelievable, but most the language which was very preferably in use was at that time also in business affairs. For example, we were we were um, providing um, applications for a real-time operating system, the OS nine. That was done with Pascal, and underneath pure assembler. So nobody who was in engaged into IT operating system was unaware of assembler. Assembler was simply, you have very often you have had to debug the compiler because the compilers were not that stable and that versatile and that sophisticated as nowadays. And right at that time, as I was in the third semester, Atari jumped into the market with a marvelous new graphical-oriented system the first real personal computer based completely on graphical output. So you have to imagine before there was only, you have had only some kind of block graphics or uh, individual characters. Yeah, there was no real graphic, no pixel-oriented approaches. There were very expensive vector displays. Vector displays, for example, for the... I was working with a vector display from um, Hewlett Packard, manufactured manufactured by Hewlett Packard at the university. That was you have had uh, the GKS, the graphical kernel system underneath, and you have had you 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 used that to produce your graphics. But it was a vector system, so the the terminal was already complete computer understanding vector approaches. Um, but the Atari ST. That was um, the first operating system. It was the GEM by DEC. And it was the briefer for years. The Atari ST was the preferred system for CAD and for desktop publishing. It, it has had a native MIDI port that made it also affordable for all the musicians. And this system has had an awful amount of RAM you suddenly get confronted with one megabyte of RAM. And nobody can, at that time, have had considered, how could I use one megabyte of RAM? I never will use that. And at the very beginning, it was like that. You have not used it up. But times was quite fast, and uh, we continued with that one. When, in the fourth semester, I started to have a first glimpse into the details of a mini computer why was a mini computer what's the difference uh, the mainframe mini computer mainframe all these whole white town uh, room filling systems with big uh, with big cabinets and all that stuff uh, by the way you might know the term to mount something uh, nowadays mounting means um that you simply um, use a file system or uh, not a file system. You use an external device or internal device, some kind of storage, and put it in some way into your regular file hierarchy or your file system, somehow like that. And that's not, uh, named mounting. But the time with the mainframes, as this term was created, mounting, mounting was really some physical activity. So there were these big piles of magnet plates 
having all the storage on site. And you when you requested to mount, you requested the operator to mount a file storage. You gave him the order. So sometimes you wrote, you have had to write to wrote a request and said, I want to have the the file, the file um, or the, the the magnet tapes. Uh, so it could be magnetic tapes or it could be some kind of plates. And then you simply order and say, I want to have that plate with all the details about statistic, program, application, whatsoever on site. And please mount that. And when the operator has taken this magnet tape, put it to the magnet tape reader, has had the, has um, used the magnet tape and placed it into the into the system, and then it was uh, it was used. It was it was taken inside. It was handled appropriately. And then the system detected that one, and then you get the information: your magnet tape is now available under this device. So mounting a file storage at that time was an issue that lasted at least 10 to 15 minutes because it was simply a physical moving around of physical data storage from one place to another. And also the, the removing of that was, was the same. If you wanted to unmount, it was also again the same. Uh, the, the operator has had to shut down the, the, the storage device and then he removed your magnetic tape or your magnetic plates. I remember one story. I was there was the most favorite things were at that time if you could print out graphics on a chain printer. So chain, graphics would mean with some characters, with regular character characters, um, some kind of, for example, um, um, currency values or uh, yeah, uh, banknotes were uh, printed out in a quite big format. Uh, using regular characters, and that was that was always the opportunity. And I remember there was one one magnet place, one one magnet pl plate where these things were available. And when I tried to mount it several times, I give the operator the the information to mount it. I was not sure that I have the permission to do it. And then I remember I was sitting in this closed room, and then suddenly the door was was open, and someone was coming in shouting, "Who tries to mount that? That's impossible! You are, you don't have the privilege to do that." And I said, uh, it was me. I don't have known that. Yeah, you don't do it again. And when he vanishes again, so the operator was really the master of all that stuff. So, and if you if it was a friend of you, you get a lot of access. But if you don't, we're not acquainted with him. You have had no chance like me. Uh, but uh, if if I jump back now from from the mounting, it was this PDP eleven was first time jumped into my life within the fourth semester as I get confronted with a presentation saying, you have to learn machine programming. I said, I already have done machine programming. What's up? And when I said, no, 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 that's the machine programming we have to learn. There is a real-time operating system. And I said, okay, I know, I know a real-time operating system. Yeah, that's a different one. Okay. And also for the PDP-11, I have I have pictures on, on the show notes. So embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 21. You will see all these photos. So, so don't hesitate. Have a look at that. So it's quite amazing to see how big these systems are or were, were at that time. And the PDP-11, that was a so-called mini-computer. It was mini in comparison to the mainframe. It was really a miniature. But compared to nowadays, this um, <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable big, yeah? 
And uh, but the PDP 11 that was a quite strange system, very strange system. It has had no direct, uh, no direct input output. It has had a memory mapped I/O. It was uh, the, it was an the most fabulous thing was it was not a hexadecimal machine. It was an octal system. All the numbers you have provided in assembler has had to be octal. That was really weird if you are familiar with all the other processes and then you suddenly have to have to uh, think back that 377 is the same as FF, yeah? So that, that's really, really weird all the time. But it has had an 8-inch floppy disk system. So compared to the other ones with all the magnet tapes, you suddenly have had floppy disks 8 inches. They're real big floppy disks. Storage capacity, mm, 80 kilobytes. 90, 160, something like that. I don't know. The most marvelous thing which everybody knows who is involved into PDP is the start-up procedure. I will finalize this episode to explain how this uh, machine was started up. The boot process was something special. It was not available in some ROM. You have had to type in the very first commands to load some registers, to jump to a specific location when you have had to place the program counter at a specific location and then press the go. And there is, there is, a, there is a, some kind of a keyboard in front of it with all like a dual inline. Yeah? So it was always uh, switches in one line. And when you have had to give the address, blah, 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 blah you, you clicked it in, all, everything in Octal. And then again, you have had to provide the data word. And then you said, okay, take that. And then you have to get the, the next program count address and then give the data. Okay, take that. And then you have entered all that. So it was, I don't know, 10, 15. I don't remember exactly. And then finally you jump back and then you say, okay, go. And that was more or less the core bootloader you have typed in. The more future-oriented systems have had already some kind of hole-punching uh, ribbon which was which has had the data inside and you can use that one so it was some kind of endless ribbon uh, in use for starting up the system but if the system crashed and it it doesn't crash it was really really stable at that time but if you have had to shut it down it was really always a marvelous job to start it up again one final thing here so I have had some exercises with the PDP-11. At that time, it was the PDP-11-40. That was already some kind of... It was not the very first um, versions, but it was... Yeah, it, it was later on. It was quite quite fine already. It served a lot of people. It has had a lot of uh, capacity. So for our purposes, we were programming in Assembler, and later on, we were programming in C. That was, by the way, my first contact with C. So it was roughly 1986. I got familiar. No floating point, nothing else. It C, the programming language C at that time was the direct successor of the B language, uh, and uh, therefore it's C, A, B, C. And uh, the C was more or less a very thin layer upon of um, the, the assembler. So if you were good in assembler, you have instantly understood what C does. And to be honest, that's the same nowadays. If if you do that, and if you if you if you do C, and you have some understanding of the of the assembler, you can write the C code exactly like that. That the optimization is rather good. But anyway, that's that's a different point. Okay, there one one exercise we have had to do. That was uh, or several exercises. Um, 
we have had one one was we have had to print out a table with uh, multiplication results so the small one one by one or one multiplied by one so uh in assembler of course and uh, but we have read the exercise description very carefully and we detected that nobody or never it was mentioned or it was nowhere mentioned that you have had to calculate it it was only that you have to print it out and that's exactly what we have done we have placed all that stuff in the static area in a static uh, static data area and then simply printed out it uh, via assembler the already done uh, exercises um, we don't get a good grade for that. Always, it was really smart, but the uh, professor didn't accept it, so, unfortunately. <laughs> but in the next exercise, I have had to make an elevator control. That was already quite easy because I was doing uh, machine controls for um, roll-forming machines and for hydraulic presses already at that time in this in, uh, industrial automation bureau. Uh, so it was it was quite easy, but that was my first application I have done with C um, elevator control. Problem at that time was also that the PDP eleven forty was designed to hold and to serve multiple users in parallel, but there were only two experiments enabled. You can imagine what has happened. More than two persons started the application, and the big crashes in the in the in the systems happened. So there was no security for that. I, I wanted to ask you now: Do do you have any kind of experiences with such old systems? What's uh, the system you loved most? What are you missing nowadays? Has anybody of you started earlier than me? That, that might be possible, of course. But please let me know. I'm really interested to see what's going on there about this uh, history. If you have the opportunity to save some of your most used or most beloved items, do it. Simple as some kind of pieces for your personal museum. I'm very sorry that I do not have more of these old things in my hands today. I have kicked them out all the time, bought new things, but nowadays I would be really happy if I could switch on the Texas Instrument 59 for my own purposes, o only due to the feeling or for the feeling again. Perhaps I'll have to go to the eBay. <laughs> okay, good. So, if, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends, colleagues, buddies, or followers. And you can, as as you might have seen on the webpage, there are lots of like and share buttons and all that stuff, so you can tweet and forward that story to your preferred channel. If you really want to make me happy somehow, when provide a feedback on iTunes or Stitcher, this gives the extra push. Thank you already now. Now I've given you some of the know-how and some of the ways to gracefully handle your embedded systems projects. It's time for you to take these details into your daily work. <laughs> Potentially not, but maybe the experience about the languages, whatever. So only if you keep in mind that some things are really different nowadays. But it was in the past, it was really, sometimes it was horrible. But try to achieve your passion and find the success. I'm Georg Lohrer from the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. Thank you for listening.